I really appreciate David giving me the opportunity to speak this morning. You know, David is pretty particular about who he allows to come to, the, to this pulpit. Uh, David is a good friend. He's not only my leader, but he's my mentor, and he's a dear brother. And I thank him so much. This morning, we're going to explore what the Bible has to say about weakness regarding evangelism. Not necessarily your favorite subject or mine. Nevertheless, very important. Uh, now, by weakness, what I'm referring to is, the, is both the absence of something and the presence of something. The absence of something is your ability. The presence of something is your fear. So when I speak about weakness in evangelism, I'm talking about your sense of of weakness or your sense of inability and your fear to speak. Now, this is a critically important topic. The reason is, is that Scripture clearly teaches us some very bold truths. For example, last week we just celebrated Easter, right? Christ has risen from the dead. In fact, his atonement on the cross once for all is accomplished. The atonement is finished. He has resurrected from the dead and the Holy Spirit has been given. We also know that he's given us his word. And since faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, we know that it's critically important for his word to be communicated. And not only that, but we know when his word is communicated, his word is living and active and sharp. And it pierces, it pierces down to the innermost being and it convicts. His word is authoritative and sufficient. Most of you know where I'm going with this. Because if God has done all of this, all of this great stuff, done the atonement, rose from the dead, given us His Word, promised that His Word is effective and efficient and powerful to accomplish His purpose. The weak link seems to be us, the preachers of it. Some of us, in the secret of our heart, think that probably God made a mistake somewhere. God, how can you do this fabulous work of atonement and resurrection and then hand it off to people like us? God, how can you do that? Don't you know our tendency to fail? Don't you know how, tre how tremulous we get at the thought of speaking to other people? Imagine with me for a moment an army that goes into battle with all of the latest weapons. They got the laser guided stuff. They've got tactical nukes. They have GPS type weapons. They've got smart bombs. But imagine with me for a moment this army never pulls the trigger. I believe this is what many of us Christians do in a spiritual sense. In fact, after working for years in evangelism and observing myself, 
I believe there is one overwhelming reason why we do not pull the trigger. And that is our weakness. It's the sure knowledge of our own inadequacies. It's our fear of speaking the truth. Now, I'm perhaps one of the world's greatest experts in fear and evangelism because I have and continue to experience that fear on a regular basis. It has not gone away. The things I'm preaching to you this morning are the exact same things I preach to myself on a regular basis. Nevertheless, I believe if we can get this, if we can get this, this is the pivot point. This is the fulcrum. If we can leverage our weakness biblically, it will greatly accelerate the gospel in our community and our world. We need to know how to embrace our weakness as an opportunity for the gospel. Now, there's many ways to address this, but I thought I'd keep it really simple. And I got this lesson from my interaction with my sons in particular. I tell my sons that for you guys, I'm either a good example or I'm a good example of a bad example. Either way, I'm a good example and you can learn. <laughs> now that, that's the attack we're going to take today. Because we're going to look at those who destroyed Christ. First, the destroyers of Christ. And we're going to glean some important lessons from their bad example. And then we're going to look at the disciples of Christ. And hopefully by the end, you are going to realize that it is indeed your weakness, your very weakness, that qualifies you to preach the gospel, not your strength. Okay, so let's dig in. First off, I want to identify the destroyers of Christ. And I'm going to read from John chapter 11. The scripture clearly lays it out who they were. John chapter 11, verses 47 to 53. And we're going to be uh, zooming around scripture quite a bit. I apologize for that, but, but have fun with it with me. Take some notes if you want to. Look at who these destroyers of Christ are. Verse 47, therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. Of course, they're speaking about Jesus. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And look at verse 53. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. The destroyers of Jesus in this passage are listed there. In verse 47 is the chief priests and the Pharisees. Now, we also know from Matthew 26, verses 3 and 4, that the scribes and the elders of the people are also put into that category. Uh, the book of Acts simply calls them rulers. So the people who plotted together to take Jesus' life were the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people, and the Pharisees. Those are the guys we're talking about. Now, it's interesting to note 
that after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, guess who's still alive? At the birthday of the church, guess who's still alive? These same people. The same people. So what was it about these guys? Well, we're going to look at their false, uh, their false understanding. And we're also going to look at their thinking that they were strong. Two points under them. They began with falsehood and they really thought they were strong. First, the false understanding. We read that earlier, in fact, from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8 where Paul made this statement. He said, We speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Now listen. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul clues us in onto something critically important regarding these leaders regarding these destroyers of Christ. And that is, they had a false understanding. In fact, this understanding, this misunderstanding on their part was so critical, if they could have just gotten the truth, they wouldn't have even have crucified Christ. So I asked myself, well, what exactly was it about their understanding that they didn't get? Well, there's, there's a few clues in Scripture that tell us, I believe, at least part of what that misunderstanding was about. In fact, Jesus in Matthew chapter 9 talked to them and told them and gave them a clue as to where they were going wrong. Matthew 9, verse 10, it says, And it happened that as he, that is Jesus, was reclining at table in the house, behold, many tax gatherers and sinners came and joined Jesus and his disciples at the table. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with the tax gatherers and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are ill. Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus puts his finger on part of that misunderstanding. We know what it is. And it's the fact that the Pharisees loved sacrifice and they didn't understand what God wanted. Now, Jesus, in his compassion, was telling them here, go and learn what it means. And then he quoted from Hosea chapter six, where God says, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. You see, the Pharisees could have known. They could have understand because Jesus told them God desires mercy. God came to help the weak, the sick, the infirm. We also have an illustration of that in Luke chapter 18. If you want to turn there. Luke chapter 18, a famous parable which Jesus told, verse 9 to 14. Jesus illustrated this principle perfectly. Look there in verse 9. It says, And He told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. 
Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax gatherer. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax gatherer. But I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Hopefully now you're beginning to get a glimpse of why your weakness is so powerful. If you know you're weak, if your inadequacies about evangelism cause you to shake in your boots, are you more like a proud Pharisee or like a humble and weak tax gatherer? The fact is, Jesus says clearly, he who humbles himself will be exalted. He who exalts himself shall be humbled. Well, notice with me also that these Pharisees, these Sadducees, these scribes, these chief priests and rulers also thought they were strong. They also thought they were strong. And I'm going to take you to the book of Acts. These guys had been in power for quite a while. They plotted together to have Jesus killed. They manipulated Pontius Pilate into doing the act because they didn't have the authority to crucify. And now they're still alive and they're still acting like the big boss. Look in Acts verse 4, verse 18. Now, this, in this section, the church has already been born. The disciples are out preaching boldly. The, the Lord has been raised. Can you imagine that? Miracles are being done right before your very eyes. And what do you as a ruler do in the face of that? This is stunning. Verse 18. And when they had summoned them, the disciples, that is, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. You know, that is pathetic. In light of the resurrection of Christ that just happened, in light of the graves of many of the dead people that came back to life again and went walking into the city, in light of people being healed right there in the city, in light of the bold preaching of the apostles and conversion of thousands, the best these rulers can do is to call the men in and say, hey, we command you not to speak in the name of Jesus. These guys were completely powerless and had no clue. Oh yeah, they thought they were strong. They had position. They probably had an office with a nice view. And they could get together and they could command soldiers to capture people and throw them in jail and beat them. They thought they were strong. But they were not. They were weak. Why? 
They trusted in themselves. What's the lesson for us? Well, my dear evangelist, if you are trusting in yourself, think about it. If you're going out there confident in your ability, think about it. Is that the kind of evangelist God wants? I don't think so. All right, but let's look at the disciples, okay? The disciples, we're going to turn to Acts chapter 1, because the disciples did not begin with falsehood. They began with truth. Now we're in Acts chapter 1 at the very beginning. And we need to understand this truth before we realize how weak we really are. Verse 1 of Acts 1. Luke writes, The first account I composed, uh, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day He was taken up after He had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom He had chosen. Okay, there's two bits of truth there we need to realize. Number one, the apostles were chosen by Christ. They were chosen by Him. Matthew 4.18 says, And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon and Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. These were men that Christ intentionally and particularly called for a certain task to make them into fishers of men, to capture men. These were His men. These were His guys. Before the Holy Spirit even came at Pentecost, these men were called. These men were chosen. But not only did they have a calling, they had a command. Look at that. Verse 2. After he had, Christ had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles. Did he do that? Did Christ give a command to the apostles? You bet he did. You know the command. The Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go into all the world. Preach the gospel to all the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey all I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. They had an amazing command. They had an authoritative command. They had a credible command. But that's not all. Look at verse 3 of Acts chapter 1. To these, to these apostles and disciples, He also presented Himself alive after His suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. These apostles were called by Christ. They had been commanded by Christ, given a great commission by Christ. And now we see they had been prepared by Christ. They had been given, had been given many Convincing proofs. Can you imagine the resurrected Lord 
walking with you side by side over a period off and on of 40 days, teaching you about the kingdom. They had incredible information. They had incredible training. But notice with me the, uh, the fourth thing, okay? That they were weak. Look at, look at verse uh, 4. And gathering them together, He commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. Now that's an interesting command, isn't it? Not to leave. Of all the things to command, why would He command them that one? Well, I think it's obvious. They wanted to leave. These are guys that had a track record of failure. These are guys that knew the meaning of fear. These are guys that had denied Christ. These guys knew they were weak. Just to review for you a couple of scriptures. John 18.25 After Jesus had been arrested and taken away, Simon kind of followed along. John 18.25 says, Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. The people around the fire said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter denied it again. And immediately a rooster crowed. Peter was not alone. In Mark 14.50, the Bible records, they all forsook him and fled. All of Jesus' disciples knew the meaning of fear. They knew what it was like to be laying your life on the line. And they knew what it meant to run in sheer panic. Do you know that? Have you sensed that fear? Well, we can actually relate a lot to these apostles. Have we been chosen by God? You bet we have. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draw him. John 6, 44. We have been chosen by God. Romans 8, 28. For all things work together for them that are... uh, For them that have been uh, chosen by God. Right? And called according to His purpose. We have been chosen by God. God has a particular interest in each one of us believers. He knows you by name. He knows the hairs on your head. And He has called you to be His child. Well, do we have a command? Is the Great Commission for us as well? Absolutely it is. Let's turn there for a second. Matthew chapter 28. Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all 
that I have commanded you. The disciples are to teach the new believers everything Jesus commanded. Question, was this command one of the things Jesus commanded? Obviously, yes. This command is for every believer. Every believer is commanded to go, therefore, and make disciples. There is no question about it. You and I have a calling. You and I have a command. Have you and I been taught? Okay, I'm going to ask for a show of hands in a minute. Okay. Um, but let me ask. I, I want these people to raise their hands. If you have ever been to any fit class, that is a Foothill Institute of Theological Training class at this church, or if you have been to evangelism training, or if at some time in the past you have become a Christian and you actually remember what happened. Okay. If you can remember that. Okay, if, that, if any of that's true, could you just raise your hand? Wow. Okay, that's a lot of hands. That's a lot of knowledge. You have been trained. You have been called. You have been commanded. And you have been trained. God does not require you to be a witness of what you don't know. That's kind of silly, isn't it? To think that God would expect us to testify to something that we don't even know about. You are commanded to be a witness to what you know about. That's the whole idea of being a witness, right? So those hands went up. I know you know the truth. But here's the deal. Does having a calling and a command and training and experience give you the power to overcome your weakness? The answer is no. We know the answer is no because the disciples had all of that stuff in spades. And yet, Jesus said in Acts 1, He said, Do not leave Jerusalem but wait for what the Father has promised. And in verse 8, he clarifies it. He says, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Okay. So here's the deal. We have a lot in common with the disciples. A lot of us are shaking in our boots when we think about going knocking on a door or inviting a friend over so that we can share the gospel with them. We are terrified. And yet, we have a calling, command, and the training to do so. Really, what we need is spiritual power. The question is, who does power go to and how do we get it? Well, the power goes to the weak. The power goes to the weak. We read about that earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. God has chosen the weak things, right? But let's just look at, uh, at Paul's perspective on it in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Oops, sorry, chapter 12, verses 10, verses 9 and 10. After Paul got the thorn in the, f the flesh, he asked the Lord that it would leave him. 
And verse 9 records God's response to that. God said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, Paul, for power is perfected in weakness. Power is perfected in weakness. What is your weakness? God says that's an opportunity. God says that's a qualification. That's a prerequisite for you to be filled with power. Your weakness, your insufficiency, your fear is according to God's design so that His power can be displayed through you. Did you know one of the greatest apologetics for Christianity is that it exists? Very rare for a world religion to be birthed in a non-military fashion. Very rare. How could Christianity exist when the, when the progenitors of it, the disciples, were shaking in their boots to even say anything? Well, I can tell you this for sure. It has nothing to do with those men. It has everything to do with God. God wanted to put Himself on display. And He does that through weak people. Look at Paul's response in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians. He says, Therefore, I am well content with weakness, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. My dear friend, your weakness is your qualification to share the Gospel. If someone was so bold and unfearful and thought they were adequate to do it, that's a red flag. But if someone is weak and fearful and hesitant and trembling, wow, God's going to be put on display. One of the greatest joys... Uh, in my ministry, which hasn't been too long yet, <laughs> less than two years, was during the Upland campaign. Because we had four or five people that I know about because they told me. It's probably more than that. But there were four or, four or five that related their extreme fear to go do something like that. We spent five days going out knocking on doors, uh, doing little dramatic presentations uh, in the neighborhoods, going to Chafee College, to Cal Poly Pomona. And they related their extraordinary fear. They wanted to bail out. Their mouths were dry, like mine is right now. They were, they were visibly trembling. But they did it. They did it. And it was an unbelievable joy after a few days went by to hear their testimonies come back. How they had seen people come to faith. How they had seen the Gospel go out. That is so awesome. I'm telling you, folks, this is for you. This is for the weak. You can do this. How? Okay, how? That is the question. So this is the application. You must begin with truth. You must begin with truth. And I want to get uh, practical on this. If you want to take some notes, now's a good time because I've got to go kind of fast. There are seven points for how you can begin with truth. How you can embrace your weakness. Okay? Here goes. Number one. 
Recognize your weaknesses in accord with God's design. 2 Corinthians 4.7 is the reference where Paul says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. Recognize your weakness is part of God's design. You're an earthen vessel. Now in my house, uh, we have a compost pile. And we put the compost initially in the kitchen in this old ice cream bucket. The big ones. The wine-sized ice cream bucket. (laughs) It's a very common plastic container. Okay, It's used for ordinary stuff like putting pre-compost in. That's similar to what's going on here. The earthen vessel Paul is talking about was the common pot used for common, common purposes. And the, in fact, since they didn't have indoor plumbing, if someone had to use the facilities in the middle of the night, they wouldn't go outside in the cold. They would use a common pot. And they, they would empty that during the day. What this verse is talking about is we are the common pot. We're nothing special. We're just that common pot. And God wants it so, it says so, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. God wants to include His own excellence and exclude our excellence. That's the transaction. Are you willing to give all glory to God? If so, You've begun with the first truth. Okay, the second one. Admit your complete inability to manufacture any spiritual fruit by yourself. John 15:5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. All of your training, right? All of your calling, all of your experience, all of your enthusiasm, all of your good looks, can't manufacture spiritual fruit. You are totally dependent on God. Without Christ, you can do nothing. Okay, so number one, recognize your weakness. Number two, admit your complete inability to manufacture spiritual fruit. Number three, important, reflect upon unconfessed sin. They may be sins of commission or omission, and you need to dig deep in this area. 2 Timothy 2.21 says that if anyone cleanses himself, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the Master, prepared for every good work. This is such an important step. You have to reflect upon it. You have to go back in quiet on your own and reflect. Are you too proud to forgive your brother? Has your brother offended you? Are you harboring private lust? Are you refusing to love your wife or to respect your husband? Do you have any private sins that you are hanging on to? For God to use that common vessel, that's His design. However, He demands, He requires that the vessel be clean. Which brings us to number four. Number four of how to embrace your weakness is to get clean. After you reflect on your sin, get clean. After you realize your sin, now we're going to renounce it and despise it 
Your sin is nothing but that which would destroy you. It is the worst thing in your life. Your sin that springs from the heart that wants to corrupt you and drag you down and destroy your relationships and separate you from God and His fellowship is despicable. Tell God and yourself the truth about your sin. A broken heart is the partner of honesty because your sin is ugly. And remember, God does not forgive your sin just because He feels like it. Because Christ on the cross bought your pardon. So place all of your trust in Christ. Despise your sin and love the cross. Number five, be available. Tell God you are available for any laudable and praiseworthy ministry He desires you to do. That is going to be hard for some of you. You see, it's the thing you're most afraid of where God's power is going to be displayed, right? It's the area you may be weakest in that now you're going to put on the altar to be available. Now, God may or may not require you to minister in that area. I don't know. All I'm telling you here is that you must be available to God. Romans 6.13 says, Present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Isn't the surgeon allowed to choose the instrument he wants? Shouldn't God be allowed to use you in whatever way he wants? Won't you do that for God? Won't you simply be available to Him? God, if you want to use my time, my talents, my treasure, however, God, I'm available. And number six, pray. Ask for the Holy Spirit to fill you and to control you. Remember the command in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember the promise in Luke 11.13. If you then being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Psalm 138, verse 3, In the day when I cried out, you answered me and made me bold with strength in my soul. Ephesians 3.16, Paul prays, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. When you pray and ask for God to empower you through the Holy Spirit, He has promised to do just that. So that takes us to number seven. Get ready. Get ready. Watch and wait. You see, 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. When you ask for the Spirit that God has promised, get ready. Because that Spirit in you wants to make you bold for speaking about the thing you love the most. Micah 3.8 says, But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4.17, But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me. Yes, it is the Lord, dear Christian, 
working through your weakness to show forth His power. So, you know the truth. You know to embrace your weakness. And you know how. But that's not all. One more thing. You must step out in faith. You see, boldness doesn't come, doesn't generally come from waiting comfortably at home. You must take action. You must take action. And I know that's scary for some. I'm going to give you some suggestions and feel free to write these down. But don't be just beholden to these. There's hundreds, perhaps thousands of ways that you can take action. Could be the person at work. Could be that family member. Could be your neighbor. Whoever it is and however, you need to plan on taking action. Now here's a few that we have right here at Foothill Bible Church that you can get involved in. First, join the neighborhood prayer warriors. Every month we have 30 to 40 people from this body that go out knocking on doors, praying that God will allow us to meet with people. Well, there is a dedicated prayer team that meets during that whole time to bathe all of that in prayer. We would love for you to join us. It's the first Sunday of every month from 3 to 5 p.m. You don't have to sign up. Just show up. If you want more information, talk to Doug Moody. Another idea is you could take evangelism training. Now, more training, we know, isn't necessarily the answer, right? But it is a step of faith. And in the training classes, we give you the chance to learn how to give your testimony in an evangelistic way. Learn how to share the Romans road and to role play that. Another great opportunity. Or you can join the neighborhood ambassador team that does go out and knock on doors. If you're a student at Chafee College, we're beginning a Christian club there. We need you and your participation in that club. We also have begun a ministry at Heritage Court and Heritage Park Senior Facility where we're building relationships with seniors and praying for them and having Bible study with them. And you can talk to Candy Cook on that opportunity and Sharon Beach. We also have right now a Saturday children's ministry outreach on Hope Street in South Upland, Northern Ontario. And we need workers for that. Just playing games with kids and building relationships with the families down there. That's from 3 to 5 generally every Saturday. If you're on campus at Cal Poly, get involved with Campus Crusade. There's a great ministry going. Here at Foothill Bible Church, we have an Awana club which loves to proclaim the truth of the gospel. Participate in that as a leader or as a, as a child. Participate in our Easter and Christmas events where we always want to invite all of our friends and family and neighbors. Your Oikos group can have a block party. Uh, a couple of you have already had those and they, they report back that generally about 50% of the people invited on their streets come. A great way to meet your neighbors. Talk to the deacons about being an ESL teacher, English as a second language teacher. We need you for that ministry that is now in the planning stages. 
Pray about joining us in the Upland Campaign, September 24th through 28th of this year. More information will be coming out there, but pray to God. See if that was something, that is something you'd like to do or like, that He would like you to do. Also, we need prayer warriors now for our church planting efforts. Foothill Bible Church, by God's grace, seeks to plant four churches in the next eight years. Be in prayer for the planting. Be in prayer for those men. Be in prayer for the teens. And be in prayer for the lost. Now, I know that a majority of you here are believers. And I know you're struggling with your weakness. And we're going to close in in prayer here in a moment. But I just want to mention to you others who are trusting in your own works. Just in case there's anybody here trusting in your own works. Thinking somehow that you are righteous. Have you never come to the point that you've realized you're broken and that you need Christ? If you haven't, you're more like those people who destroyed Christ not the people who love Christ. If you're relying on your own works, your own righteousness, your own goodness, you're headed towards disaster. And furthermore, you know it's wrong. You know inside your life is broken and messed up. You know you're filthy. And you know you can't save yourself. I urge you, come to Christ. We're going to be having some people down front by the lighted cross over here after the service. And you need to come to them and ask them how you can come to Christ. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for Your words, which tells us so clearly that You are in control. That You design our weaknesses so that we must depend upon You. Oh God, work through those weaknesses now, we ask You. In the name of Christ, our living Lord, give us boldness, strength in the inner man, so that we can praise You and proclaim You the way You ought to be praised. Thank You, Lord. We trust You and praise You and pray all these things in Your name. Amen.